and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science, half an hour on your radio where we'll be talking about sciencey things. And with me this week, I have Chris. What have you brought in for us to ponder about? Well, Stu, um, you're a, you're a pet owner. I believe you have a cat. Well, uh, yeah, yeah. She owns us, I think, more than we own her. But yeah, there there is a cohabiting cat in the house. Right. Have you had much to do with dogs, or do you have much of an opinion about dogs? I've I've had dogs, and I've worked with dogs when I was doing different jobs. I was a drover for a while, so I, I relied on them basically to help with the work. So yes, I have spent a lot of time around dogs and I, I have a lot of time for dogs. Great. Do you have like a preferred breed or anything like that that you go for? From my experience working with them, I do like the Kelpie, which yeah. is uh, yeah, a little Australian sheepdog. They're, they're super tough and generally pretty intelligent and um, and, and very useful little creatures to have around when you're dealing with sheep as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and people often have their, their preferences. And, yeah, a lot of it is kind of, I suppose, sort of what you've been exposed to in the past and that sort of thing. But, you know, it's also, you know, we've put a lot in, you know, I want this dog, you know, these dogs have certain personalities, certain characters that, you know, is appealing to me as a pet is the way we think about these things. What if I told you, though, that a new study that's just come out says that different dog breeds don't have distinct personalities. That the associated with dog breeds and personalities is a lot weaker than you'd expect. Ah, uh, look, I, I, it, it kind of doesn't surprise me. I do suspect a lot of what we uh, see in animals is a reflection more of ourselves than anything to do with them, and we sort of project human characteristics onto them a little bit. So, look, uh, that doesn't really surprise me, but it's interesting to hear that because you, I, I know there would be people who would absolutely put their hand on their heart and swear that their particular favourite breed has a certain kind of personality or caninality, I suppose, is the technical term, would that be? Yeah, quite possibly. Well, look, um, I'm not sure we'll be able to fully satisfy any um, objections they might have, but I will look into the, this science, this recently published science, and yeah, what the evidence is saying about the, the genetics of dog personality. Fantastic. And also Claire will be joining us. Claire? Well, this week I am looking back in time and, you know, I'm not just talking a couple of million years back in time. I'm talking billions and billions of years back in time. Um, actually, the oldest thing that we've ever found on Earth um, and looking at some new research that suggests how, um, how you know, one of the oldest things that we've ever found on Earth, which comes out of a meteorite, how those meteorites might give us some ideas as to how life evolved on Earth. Um, and some new research that shows um, some of those very important organic compounds um, and, you know, the building blocks of life, as they say, bits and pieces that DNA contains, how they potentially came from meteorites. Oh, wow. So, the, you know, talking organic compounds, but this is prebiotic Way yeah. before life existed, wow. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We're even talking way before the solar system existed, which is sort of cool as well. I was Very thinking, old. you know, old like what you find in the back of the fridge after you cleaned it out. But no, no, no this is, we're talking way older than that. <laughs> well, I don't know. Modern science doesn't have an answer for some of the things I find in the bottom of my crisper. So stay tuned oh. for that uh, coming up on Lost in Science. 
Okay, Stu, do you remember the 1983 movie Trading Places? I do remember the 1983 movie Trading Places. With uh, Dan uh, Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy? Yes, it's it's one of my favourite Christmas movies, actually. <laughs> there's, a, there's a whole Christmas undercurrent to it. It takes place at Christmas time and there's a, a famous scene with a smoked salmon and a Santa beard, which if you haven't seen it, you may find amusing it is an entertaining movie parts of it haven't really stood up well to time like some of the language and um and there is a blackface scene that perhaps maybe it needs a a content warning before recommending this movie yeah true true i mean really like the story just despite the uh questionable scenes at the end it's sort of that prince and pauper thing where they swap places as the name suggests they trade places but um it's framed as a scientific debate of nature versus nurture what is more important in i guess in the way that people turn out this is a question that obviously people have debated for a very long time and i think that the current impression i get is the current uh feeling is that it's actually it's both really we have genes for certain things, but the genes are only expressed and do anything when the right environmental triggers are there, which makes sense. You know, you need the nurture for the nature to work. But it's still, I mean, it still raises a lot of questions about what kind of genes there may be, what, what kind of traits they would affect. And, you know, it's something people study because I guess, you know, you know, as important as the environmental aspects might be or the social determinants, whatever, they are harder to study than sequencing genes. Um, perhaps more worth studying, but they are um, a bit more complicated to to un- unpack. Yeah, one of I mean one of the big issues with uh, with studying this is it's very you know we're dealing with human lives and the the ethics of doing sort of testing of human uh, behavior is very difficult. You can't you can't have it's not easy to have a control. Let's put it that way. Um, yeah. So it's not it's not the kind of experiment you could you could easily run. You've got to sort of uh, infer things from how people behave, I suppose. Yeah. And look, and there has been work done on this um, where they're looking at say, I mean, with with personality, there is certain kind of reliable markers. You know, they have the the big five personality traits that, that psychologists use. And uh, which I won't list them all here because it's just five different traits, and um, I'm getting trying to get got to get to the point of my story. So, um, but um, yeah, look, they claim that you know, Sin claims that thirty to sixty percent of personality may be heritable, according to studies with twins and adoption. Um, but you're right; it's hard to do controlled thing experiences. Also, it is dangerous territory because, um, as I said, we don't really understand. The, the 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 social effects the environment that well those impacts and so it is all too easy for people to just look focus on the genetics and say it's all about genetics and this can lead to very dangerous conclusions um and humans are very complex and uh we don't want to go start assuming things that um yeah could lead us to um to dangerous territory so instead how about we look at a different species entirely our good friends, the dogs. Our best friends, the dogs, surely. Our best friends, the dogs. Yeah, what is it? Canis familiaris is the species yeah. name, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, now dogs obviously have personalities, they have big personalities, some of them. And we tend to assume or associate certain breeds with certain personalities. But a recent study published in the journal Science found that that's not really true as to the extent that we believe. So 
Kathleen Morrill and colleagues, they have a citizen science project they've been running. It's called Darwin's Ark, where essentially pet owners submit information about their animals. Um, they had 16,000 dog owners who had information about their pets' personalities and breeds. And there was another 2,000 who, as well as the survey, submitted genetic samples. They were sent like cheek swabs to take of their dog. Um, and what they found, there was an effect of, I guess, genetics on personality, about, but less than one quarter of the differences in personality for dogs could be explained by genetics. Um, there are some traits like uh, retrieving objects and sociability with humans were more, I guess, more inherited. But that's just um, heritability overall. When you talk about breeds, only about 9% of the personality differences between dogs were determined by their breed. Oh, wow. So really almost negligible, really. Yeah, yeah. Less it's, than it's 10%. Pr- less than 10%. And this is kind yeah. of a surprising result. And they were quite surprised as well. Um, that it was such a low amount. And I think one of the ones that was particularly low, which is kind of surprising but also important, is that um, the connection between the breed of the dog and how likely it was to be aggressive. Um, and you think about how we treat dangerous dog breeds, that they say this is an aggressive breed, but the evidence that certain breeds are more aggressive is apparently very low. Oh, that that is really interesting, especially because there are you know there's specific laws about um, certain dog breeds and even even whether you're allowed to own certain dog breeds in some places. So that's very interesting to know that it's actually not to do with the breed. Yeah, but I guess it is complicated because you are dealing with I suppose humans and the way humans treat animals as well. So look, they put this um this down like this um lack this um lack of importance to the dog breed down to how recently dog breeds were created. You know, they were, they were bred um, over the last couple of hundred years. Um, and they've essentially been bred mostly for appearance, for cosmetic effect. So you're not really breeding dogs for personality. Um, and so they haven't really had time to develop distinct personalities for each breed. Um, basically, we've just been concentrating on, like, you know, the way their ears sit and, you know, the shape of their face and that sort of stuff. Um, but the interaction, I guess, with humans is an important part of it. I suppose looking at aggressive dogs, perhaps, you know, it's what people may breed those dogs for and how they use those dogs or train those dogs may affect how the dogs turn out. Um, and so it, I guess, yeah, it's, it's what we do, the environment we put those dogs in have an effect. Um, but, you know, there's also, I guess, as you said uh, initially, it's like the, um, as we project onto them as well. And I think a lot of that, we talk about the physical appearance of of dogs that i think affects how we treat them as well like if you imagine a dog with like sticking up perky ears you're going to probably think is more perky and attentive than a dog that has droopy ears yeah for arguments yeah and also you know i mean there's 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 obviously psychological triggers in humans where we think certain ratios of body size and head size and that sort of thing are cuter than others so we we definitely would associate that stuff with a, a, a sort of projected personality in the animal as well yeah and i saw a thing saying yeah for instance um pugs are often considered mischievous um and you know they're a small scrappy little dog i mean a great dane uh is probably not going to be able to be mischievous to the extent that a pug can be like just physically it's not possible for them to do the same things 
Oh, um, harder for a great dame to sneak around. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But you know, they did they did look at what behaviours had, I guess, more um, a connection with um, with genetics, and they tried to find the actual genetic associations. They 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 found there were eleven regions of the genome that were linked to specific behaviours. Um, for instance, and these often had analogues to human genetics as well. So the tendency to howl, for example, um, was a a region that was near two genes that for humans are connected to speech. So there's a connection there, say, between howling and genetics for human speech. But the biggest link, I guess, genetic link with um, behavior was, this is an interesting one, is between a region of, um, is the region of the genetic, in humans, this region of the genome is connected to cognitive performance. But for dogs, this particular region of the genome um, increased their likelihood of getting stuck behind objects. <laughs> So I'm not sure what that says, really. Um, you know, if you're really smart, maybe you're likely to get stuck. Yeah, I mean, for dogs, basically, maybe dogs are curious and get themselves into trouble. But uh, yeah, it's an interesting. That's an interesting association. Um, I, I want. I want. I want more research into this. Why? <laughs> why the? Why the cognitive abilities? Uh, linked to getting stuck behind things. I want I want more papers on this particular topic because that's quite it, funny. It actually is, yes. So I guess what that really implies is this doesn't tell us anything at all about humans, which is kind of the point I was trying to make um, initially, that we can we can kind of find out more about dogs. We can find that, you know, the genetics for dogs, it is more complicated. It's not as simple as this breed has a certain personality trait. Um, we definitely don't want to make any assumptions about humans, as I said. Um, but as for dogs, they do have a website. The researchers have a website, which I'm, I don't know. Maybe we can see if we can put up in the um, in the notes for this show. You can put in uh, the traits that you desire, and they'll tell you what breeds are the best match um, for those traits. But um, as we discussed, the the correlations are very low, so don't expect any particular you know true. I guess, genetic determinism when it comes to your dog's personality. You can always try and train your dog to be more like how you would like it to be, I suppose. Exactly, exactly. It's probably more, it's more about you than it is about your dog. What are you onto? Anything of interest to the uh, scientific community? Together, you and I are going to make the greatest single contribution to science since the creation of fire. It's a big scientific experiment. What do I know? Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. How did life on Earth begin? Were there always these building blocks just ready, present on Earth, waiting for the right time and place to organise themselves into living organisms fit for purpose or ready to be evolved? Uh, Or did these organic compounds come from somewhere further afield, like outer space? Uh, These these are some of the questions um, that I'm posing to you, Stu. What do you reckon? Do you have a gut feeling about it? Uh, look, I, I know I know they have found various organic compounds in space. They've found samples of, I think, formaldehyde mm. in asteroids, and you know, there's various other carbon uh, carbon containing molecules out there that yeah. seem to just be kind of, for want of a better word, naturally occurring. They weren't made by life necessarily, but they are 
um, they are on Earth made by living things, but they already existed in their chemical form out mm. in space on their own. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's it's fascinating because this week we we have some more research to give us more of an understanding and a bit more of a convincing sort of scientific argument that the building blocks of life on Earth may have been delivered to Earth via a carbon-rich package from outer space, also known as a meteorite. <laughs> I love it. Now it's a, it's, and, and it's only a meteorite when it hits the ground, right? Before oh, yeah, it's a, a meteor. meteor. It's a meteor yeah. when it's in the sky, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Before it hits something, then, and when it's on the ground, it's a meteorite. You can pick it up. Yeah, That's right. You can pick it up. Just wait a little while before you pick it up, though. Uh, where, where the uh, where the oven mitts? <laughs> where the oven mitts. You can right. pick it up before it cools down that way. Yeah. <laughs> so research um, was published this week. So research that was published this week takes meteorites that landed in Australia, one that landed in Canada, and one in the US uh, over the past eighty years or so, and using a bunch of new chemical techniques, shows that these types of meteorites contain all the necessary components needed to make both DNA and RNA, which is something that's never been shown before. And it's really quite something when you think about, oh, you know, where did these building blocks of DNA and RNA originate from? So before I get too much into the research, I just want to take a step back and think about these meteorites because they are pretty incredible. They're called carbonaceous chondrites. Carbonaceous chondrites, which, um, yeah, it's a little bit of a mouthful, but carbonaceous meaning they're really rich in carbon and organic matter, or organic materials, organic compounds, I should say, not organic materials like the like plants or anything. That That's not it. It's organic compounds. And chondrite meaning that they have not been modified by melting or any other sort of thing on their way into the atmosphere. So they're no, um, they're representative of the source material that they've come from. So the larger rock that they might have come from. So they don't sort of they don't sort of burn up on their way through the on their on their passage through the atmosphere. They're they're pretty much intact. They're pretty much the intact. Idea. Yeah, and the one that fell to Australia that was used in this research, <clears throat> you may have heard of it before. It's it's one of actually the most widely studied meteorites. It's called the Murchison meteorite. I have um, heard of that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it fell near the Victorian town of Murchison back in 1969. So it's an old one, um, but it's a really special meteorite um, in that in 2020, Researchers reported that this particular meteorite just down the road, you know, found in Australia, Victorian town, this meteorite is the oldest material, contains the oldest material found on Earth ever. So it contains material that is 7 billion years old, which is, you know, a lot older than the 4.5 billion years that earth has under its belt and the solar system has under its belt so it's old it's older than the solar system it's, it's older than somewhere. the solar system yeah wow yeah that is amazing yeah but it is one of these carbonaceous chondrites um so it does have all these organic compounds in it 
um, and it's been studied quite a lot. Um, and what we do know was, as well as when the Earth was formed around four and a half billion years ago in its infancy, it, it was pelted by meteorites at the time and comets and other materials from space. So, you know, it's a, it's a plausible theory that potentially some of these meteorites, such as the Murchison meteorite, would have been flying around and, um, you know, crashing into a very young Earth at the time. Um, and, then, and that these sort of complex organic compounds from these meteorites ended up on Earth for that reason. So, yeah, so we know we have the oldest rocks in the world which fell to Earth as meteorites and they're jam-packed with organic compounds. Um, but science was sort of is, is yet to catch up with exactly being able to identify exactly which organic compounds they are because they are sort of in such trace elements that it is quite difficult to identify them, which brings us back so to the research. So it's very, very small quantities of these things, isn't it? I exactly. Mean, and, and we may not have even had the technology in 1969 to figure out what was in the in the meteorite. Exactly. Yeah, it's um, it's a little bit like you know, slowly, slowly as technology and and our systems and um, you know, just our techniques to being able to identify really trace amounts of these organic organic compounds um, improves we can just get a you know paint a better picture of exactly um, what's contained within these ancient ancient rocks um, so yeah this brings us back to the research published by Yasuhiro Oba and colleagues from Hokkaido University um, now Stu when we're talking about DNA remember we've got a bunch of different nucleobases that form the DNA molecule you've got your um, that well, they're, they're broken up into two groups. There's the pyrimidines, um, yep. and then there's the purines. So your pyrimidines are your cytosine, your uracil, and your th and your thymine, or yep. as sometimes you might hear them, just your C, U, and T. <laughs> yep. And then you've got your purines, and that's your guanine and your adenine, and that if you you know, they're your G's and your A's. Yep. Um, and in the past, scientists have been successful in detecting three of these five chemical compounds in these meteorites. So um, only the purines, so your A's and your G's, and also uracil have been identified in meteorites. So three out of five have been identified, but the other two, your C's and your T's, um, could not be found within these meteorites so there was always there's always been this sort of question mark around sort of oh well you know if this theory of the meteorites you know coming down to earth and impregnating us with these um with these building blocks of life really is true then where did the c and the t come from which are necessary for for both dna and rna yeah, because if you don't have the if you don't have the C and the T, then they don't they, they pair up with the A and the G, so you get exactly. Uh, you, you, it's like a zipper, and you've got it's one like side zipper. is the C and the T, and the other side is the G and the A, and the order yeah. of them gives you the instructions that is contained in the DNA. But that's amazing that they're intact uh, nuclear 
bases mm. on a meteorite. That's that's crazy. Uh, it's, you know, that's that's mind blowing. It's pretty mind blowing, isn't it? And just to yeah. think that it's so much older than the solar system, and they've just been hanging around for billions of years. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's it's kind of it's it's fascinating to think because you know I mean DNA makes copies of DNA as well, but if the base pairs were or you know the the nuclear bases were already there then the DNA just had to kind of put them together and that's mm. even that's really interesting yeah 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 fascinating so Yasuhiro and Oba um looked at the Murchison meteorite again as well as a Canadian and US one um and they they have sort of specialized and used state-of-the-art analytical techniques which have been optimized for really that um small scale quantification of the nuclear bases found in the dna and analyze the meteorite and um unlike in previous work with these meteorites the methods used were more sensitive and didn't use things like strong acids or hot liquid to extract the five components. So that's why they think potentially, you know, their methodology is different to previous methodologies. Um, and the, the, um, the C's and the T's were a little bit more potentially fragile than, um, than the A's and the G's. So they didn't use any of those, you know, strong acids or anything like that. Um, and and so you know by using these techniques in addition to the compounds that have previously been detective that have previously been detected they have now also detected these elusive pyrimidine nuclear bases so now they've got the they've, they've found the full set you've got your c's and your t's to accompany your a's and your g's as well as you use, which you need for RNA. And this is the first time that every single one of them, the full, the full set, the full five, have been found um, within the meteorites. And, um, and to boot, it, like what's quite interesting as well is the compounds are present at concentrations that are similar to what was predicted by experiments, which replicate the conditions um, sort of which existed early in the formation of the solar system. So, you know, they've got this sort of like model data and um, the, the concentrations of these organic compounds is very similar to what was modelled. So, you know, it all, it's, all, it's all looking pretty good. Um, so the researchers say that although the results may not directly show us and elucidate the origin of life on Earth, they do believe that they can improve our understanding of early Earth before the onset of life, which I reckon is a goal that truly rocks. And that is all we have time for this week on Lost in Science. Thank you for joining us in Getting Lost. If you have any questions or suggestions for the team, get in touch with us by email. We are lostinsci at gmail.com. You can send cheap tweets to us 
at LostInScience1 on Twitter, or you can find us on the ubiquitous Facebook. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the land of the Kulin Nation and is broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find a podcast version of the show on 3cr.org.au or you can tune in the way you did this week when we return in our usual time slot to get Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.